As we continue our series on generosity in all areas of life, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. This is the part of the Gospel of Luke that is similar to the Sermon on the Mount that we're most familiar with reading in Matthew, um, but most of the same sections appear together in Matthew and Luke. Um, Some things are worded differently, and Luke has some things that are spread in different parts where Matthew keeps it all together in a few chapters. But these are words of Jesus, particularly on loving your enemies. And as we think about people who seek to be generous in all areas of life, that includes being generous in conversation. That includes being generous in disagreement, generous in relationships. And Jesus teaches us very clearly that we are people who get to be generous in forgiveness. Forgiveness of those who have wronged us and showing generous love even to our enemies, even to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so as we consider what it looks like to live in this particular aspect of generosity, I hope we can study together Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But before we do so, let's pray together. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. You have given us a strong light to guide our path through the gift of your word. You have generously sent to us the Holy Spirit to illumine your word to us. You have been gracious to us in making clear the path of life and empowering and equipping us to follow you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may we not serve our own agendas or seek to reinforce what we already know about ourselves and about others, but may we simply take a moment to walk with you. And may your words and your Holy Spirit be the power that moves in, within, through, and around us so that we can be generous in forgiveness, generous in conversation, generous in disagreement, and generous in relationships. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But to you who are listening, I say... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those, who, to, to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. 
Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a small town with a few churches in it, and in one of those churches, there was an elder named Ed. And Elder Ed was one of the go-to people. He had grown up in the town and in that same church his entire life. He, he knew people. He knew what was going on in the town. And every pastor, since pastors sometimes take themselves a little too seriously, every pastor had to learn over time that there were some situations that you say, Ed handles this one. We're going to let Ed take care of this one. Ed the Elder was known in the 70s for making a kind of a bold move to help church people not take themselves so seriously, as he put it. There was a young man in the town who had gone off to university, someone they were all proud of, and for a theater part that he was playing, he began to grow his hair out, and he came back for break, and it was all the talk, not only of the church, but also of the town, that they couldn't believe that this young man's hair was getting long. And so Ed, hearing the talk of the town, being attentive to what was going on in the church, for a few days before Sunday, didn't shave and let his face get stubbly. And then on Sunday morning, he went to church with a stubbly, unclean face. And he got a lot of looks and double takes because this isn't what you would expect from good old Ed. And then finally, someone had the courage or the audacity, whatever you want to call it, to, to look at it and say, Ed, I can't believe you didn't shave this morning. And Ed's response was this, I am just as much an elder of this church with an unshaved face as that young man is a son of this church and a son of the town with short hair or long hair. Boom. And that was Ed. Some things were handled by Ed, as he would put it, to not take church folks so seriously. But there was other situations that Ed was sent in for. And it was when there were certain types of conflict, because Ed was not one to jump to defense against those who accused him, not one to argue on their terms. Every now and then, you can imagine the conversation would go something like this. Someone's ready to leave the church, they're upset, they're disgruntled. And so they would say something along the lines of, well, this, this happened to me and nobody cared. Nobody did anything for me. And so every pastor had to learn that Ed got sent in to handle those. Because they would say, well, this happened, and, and no one called. No one sent a card. Nobody cared. Nobody cares about me around here. And rather than try to argue the qualitative assessment of if anybody cares or not, Ed would just agree, well, that's too bad. It's hard when we don't feel cared for, isn't it? And if it was a situation like, well, I had the surgery and nobody called, pastors would be asking, well, did I know about it? Did you tell me? Were we informed? Were we aware? But Ed would just ask, oh, that's too bad that nobody called or sent you a card. Well, when, uh, when, Nancy, when Nancy had her surgery, did you call her and, and send her a card? Or, or what about when, uh, when, when, when Calvin was diagnosed? Did you call him and send him a card? 
And he would go down the line of some more recent things or some more severe situations going on in the church and would ask people if they had done to others the very thing that they would express disappointment that was not done for them. This may sound kind of mean. It may sound kind of interrogative. But the point was that more often than not, the measure that was being used against others was not being measured against oneself. And so the very complaints about this was not done for me, people were very rarely doing that for others in return. Where did Ed get this type of measure from? He got it from Jesus. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap for those who are generous. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is the negative side of the measurement. But it is also an example of loving your enemies or being kind to the ungrateful or simply doing unto others as you would have them do for you. Now, I don't think this had that much of an effect on people necessarily, but it did protect against one thing. The knowledge of what we expect from others in many cases is moot in comparison to what Jesus calls us is to be compassionate towards everyone else. As one commentator put it on this text, being a Christian doesn't entitle you to the kindness of the church, but being a Christian requires you to show kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked. Whether you've received kindness from others or not, you have received kindness from Christ himself. And isn't that reason enough that we love because he first loved us? We love because he first loved us. Jesus talks a fair amount in, in this passage in Luke about showing kindness and, and giving to those who can't give back to you, lending to those that you don't expect to receive anything back from, showing kindness and love to your enemies. There's no return on investment on this side of earth. You're giving in areas that you don't expect to receive anything back. And this might raise our anxiety a little bit because it does sound like we're getting somewhat taken advantage of and we're going to backtrack a little bit earlier on or later on. But all the same, Jesus is continuous and consistent in this one simple measure. If you do this, even sinners lend and get repaid. Even sinners love those who love them. What sets you apart? That was Pastor Audrey's question for the week. This is a measure that Jesus presents before us. What sets us apart as people? Not just those who help each other out, but those who help even in situations where we won't get anything back for it. What sets us apart? How can we go a step further and demonstrate that if we have received the perfect love of Jesus Christ, if we have received that, then how do we reflect a perfect self-giving love in generosity and grace to others? Going one step further. After all, there's things that, uh, like James 2.19 reminds us that you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Belief in a good and gracious God does not set us apart even from demons. But the real measure is in what acts of self-giving love with no expectation of repayment and given to those who aren't going to pay us back or aren't even grateful. 
That's still the verse that gets me, this character of God that is given to us. Even sinners lend to sinners, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High. Because what? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Have you ever been kind to an ungrateful person? Have you ever extended hospitality into your home or into your life to someone who turned out to be simply ungrateful? And it does leave kind of a bad taste in your mouth because you know you went above and beyond. You went the extra measure and you received nothing in return. Not so much as a thank you or a note of appreciation. And yet Jesus reminds us that don't worry, Great is your reward, even for these examples of unthanked assistance. And isn't that enough? As we get closer to Lent, to know that we love because Christ first loved us. We have received kindness in Christ, and isn't that justification enough to show kindness to others? Again and again and again. To the to the ungrateful and the wicked. So we haven't even got into the wicked people yet. We haven't even quite stepped into what it looks like to be kind to those who just hate us and despise us and have nothing good to say about us whatsoever. Because if we're honest, when we've been kind to the ungrateful, it has burned us just a little bit. It's annoyed us. And maybe it hasn't stopped us from being compassionate, but it is the type of thing that we maybe gripe to our friends and family about. There's many examples of that sure right here. But the reminder in the Gospel of Luke is that great is your reward because those were acts of generosity. Those were acts of generosity that reflect God's character when no thanks or no return favor will be at play. One thing that we want to think about in terms of generosity as we go from not only being kind to the ungrateful, first, sure, we can love those who love us, We can be kind maybe to the ungrateful. The wicked, loving our enemies, that's another step up. That's the A game of generous Christian living. But one phrase I'd like us to try on for at least today, if you were going to write anything in your bulletin for some notes, I'd recommend this. What we are pursuing is spiritual growth, not spiritual arrival. Spiritual growth, not spiritual arrival. Because if, if we believe that God is at work and active in all areas of life, including our own, we are not a finished work. None of us are perfect until Christ returns or Jesus calls us home to be with him. We are always pursuing some level of growth and investment of who we are, growing to be more like Jesus, whose self-given character shows kindness even to the wicked and the ungrateful, that Jesus died for even those who are not grateful that Jesus healed ten lepers knowing that only one of them would think to come back and say thank you, that the other nine would go about their lives and not think twice or think that it was important to come back. These are examples of generosity. And we pursue spiritual growth, not spiritual arrival. Spiritual arrival is only Christ's finishing work within us. Spiritual growth is the gracious response that we live into in response to God's grace to us. So spiritually grow. As it was said to me about tithing, as we think about um, 
those staggering statistics that really only 7.4% of people who attend church tithe regularly, the actual 10%. But it was suggested to me by someone wise in the congregation to remember that if we tithe 2%, we probably won't jump to 10% overnight. We might go from 2 to 3, or 3 to 3.5, and to see what God does with that, to test out the waters. Because once again, it is a matter of spiritual growth. Whether it's in finance, in conversation, in generosity, in hospitality, or in worship. We are pursuing growth. And in the same way that maybe we try on just a little bit more in this idea of loving our enemies, in forgiving others, in being kind, and being generous in our relationships, we are pursuing spiritual growth. To take note of our comfort zone and what we're comfortable with doing and who we're willing to show love to and what we actually expect in return and to take one small step beyond our comfort zone. Because we don't grow if we stay in the comfort zone. And Jesus is describing the comfort zone of loving those who love you, lending to those who pay you back, showing kindness to those who are truly grateful. But to take one step further, to grow a little bit and see what God does with those moments where we live into generous relationships, where we lend without any expectation of return. And that's not just financial. I consider how much things change in a household with, uh, with the advent of children. And that there are times where you make deals with your spouse. Many of us have probably done this. You know what? If you let me do this now and just get away, I will repay you later and take a night with the kids or take an early morning with the kids. We make these deals. Do, do other people do this or is this just a DeVries thing? Okay, good. I hope, I hope I'm not the only one. There are times where we simply trade back and forth. Hey, I'll do you a favor. I do need this in return. We probably have friends that we've lent something to them and they'll lend back to us. And this is all fine and good. This is within our comfort zone. But can we grow into not holding it against others when there is no expectation of repayment or even recognition of gratitude in the first place? Because Jesus knows that that's what gets into our hearts. That gets under our skin. There are times where we just have to say, I'll do this for you if you can do this for me. There's a time to take turns and to let that happen. But that's not actually generosity. Generosity is saying, I will do this for you just because I love you. I will take a night with the kids, or I will do this for you at work, or I will take care of this in the house for you. Because we can practice this even within our own families. This generosity is practiced in church, in the home, in the workplace, wherever it is, but we start small. But to say, I will do this for you just because I love you. I don't need anything in response. I don't need anything in return. This is an act of generous love that is being done out of love. That's the type of generosity that Jesus is painting a picture for for us. And he's being careful about all of this language of setting us apart from even sinners do that. You need to go one step beyond. Now, of course, we're all sinners saved by grace. But in, in the sermon, Jesus is articulating that there has to be something different about you. If you're people that are no longer recognized as sinners because you've received God's grace, there should be one step above that sets you apart. Now, there are ways where we might feel a little bit taken advantage of. But I want to be very careful about putting some boundaries on that. 
In the same way that you get to determine where your comfort zone is, that you get to take one step out further, one step beyond what's comfortable for you, maybe just do the one thing that you know they're not going to appreciate or pay you back for, but you'll do it anyway, out of love. The boundaries I want to be really careful about are this. There are situations of abuse and being taken advantage of that are not the prescription for this text. There are situations of abuse that we are not prescribing here or giving permission towards. Because if you've got TV or internet, you know that that's rampant right now. To know the context that Jesus is speaking to in these first century audience, all this stuff about if someone takes your cloak from you, you give them your tunic or your shirt as well, well, this is because they're a Roman-occupied state. So there are armed soldiers with swords and spears and armor and helmets. And you know what? They have power over everyone else. And so if it's cold, or even if they're not cold, but just because they can, it would not be uncommon for a Roman soldier to pick on a lonely traveler and say, hey, give me your coat. And you just have to do it. You could fight them, you can resist them, but you probably won't because you're a peasant with a pitchfork and there's five people with swords and spears and shields and swords. I think I said swords twice. Maybe there's two of them. But this would just happen. This was commonplace. This was why the Jews didn't like being a Roman-occupied state, because they did get picked on. They had benefits. We talked about that last week, too. There was benefits to it, but it was also unfair. And Jesus says, you know what? If someone, it would be a Roman soldier. If someone takes from you your cloak, just give them your tunic, too. And this is actually advice of de-escalation. Instead of being all upset about having your cloak taken away and someone's taken it from you and now you're just trying to get away quickly, well, now they know they've got you. They've got you all stirred up. They're going to keep picking on you. This is a bullying pattern, is it not? Instead, you give them your cloak and you say, hey, you know what? Here's my shirt too. Well, now, for one, you're in control of that boundary and you've just made someone really uncomfortable, actually. You are mocking their power over you. They wanted your coat, and you say, okay, here's your coat. Now you're taking your tunic off. Now, please don't do this literally, but you get the understanding of what context Jesus is talking into. You have taken away the power of abuse that is over you through generosity, through saying, it sure is cold. Here's my coat. Here's my tunic. What else do you want? Because it's not about the stuff. It's not about the stuff that gets taken from us. In this way, people would be de-escalating Roman soldiers who would otherwise be picking on and oppressing basically Jewish peasants in any Roman-occupied state. Give to those who ask you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Don't fight for it. Say, just as well, you can have it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Thinking generously about this. Now, this is stuff, and Jesus does say if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. This is an honor-shame culture thing where if someone strikes you, you have to prove to yourself or you have to strike them back, and it leads to escalation. But one thing to be very clear about once again, this does not mean that our bodies get taken advantage of. It should not. We are in control of the boundaries that we have. We should be wise and discerning in that. And what Jesus is after is loving your enemies and giving to those who are just ungrateful, practicing a type of generosity that you won't get paid back for on earth, but great is your reward in heaven. 
you are in control of the boundaries. And we should be mindful of that. And that's why context does not explain away the high demand of this, but it does hopefully give an understanding to what Jesus is after. Pray for those who mistreat you. And that's a good place to start. Do you have someone that you're upset with? Someone that maybe you would count not even as an enemy, but someone who has bothered you, someone that you're frustrated with. I'm not going to say that you should pray for them. I'm going to ask, how are you praying for them right now? Because once again, this is spiritual growth, not spiritual arrival. We do not forgive overnight things that have been done to us that have wronged us at a deep core level. And so to be very clear again, for victims of abuse, this is not the text that says, you know what, tomorrow morning you should wake up completely forgiving of your abuser. I think that takes a long time, it takes years, and I think it takes therapy, honestly, to work through the type of abuse that some people have suffered at the hands of others. But this can start small. This is working up in spiritual growth. To think about those who have just bothered you, people you don't care for, how are you praying for them? And where do you start with that? Maybe for a lot of us, we would start um, with Psalm 3, verse 7. Lord, I pray that you strike my enemies on the jaw, that you break the teeth of the wicked. That might, be the best, that might be the best prayer you can come up with right now. And you can even say, it's biblical, break the teeth of my enemies. It is biblical, but it's not the end game that Jesus is after. Jesus recognizes that even in the Psalms, we might feel that way. We might express that kind of anger and hatred towards our enemies but that's not the end game. The end game of Jesus is not Psalm 3-7, break the teeth of the wicked. The end game of Jesus is, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The end game for Stephen, the first martyr, was not to throw rocks back at those who were stoning him, but to say, Lord, forgive them. Take my spirit. There is generosity in self-giving love. And those boundaries are ours to exercise And I would, in in fact, say that spiritual growth should be taking place in how you pray for your enemies over time and does it change how you pray for them over time. If you stay stuck on break the teeth of the wicked forever and ever, there's no growth happening. But what if you go from break the teeth of the wicked and take one step towards, God, they're frustrating me a lot. And then we take one step further into compassion for our enemies And then we maybe take one step further into wondering what made them do that in the first place. Love your enemies is not a destination that we arrive at overnight. Loving your enemies is a step-by-step incremental growth that we take one small step at a time. And that does mean praying for our enemies. And if there's any spiritual growth at work, our prayers will change for them over time. And how we pray for people shapes how we view them. How do you see someone who has wronged you? Certainly as an enemy. And it can be hard to remember in those moments of animosity that they are also children created in the image of God. Step-by-step incremental growth into loving your enemies. We have fear of being taken advantage of. But Jesus is not as worried about that. Great is your reward. 
And if this enemy love and this compassion for those who are ungrateful doesn't sound like any fun, I would offer one proverb that's just helpful that we can feel a little bit, I don't know, edgy about. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So yes, sometime even our compassion is done with what the Proverbs describe as you are heaping burning coals on their heads because you are killing them with kindness. This is the giving your shirt and your coat to the Roman soldier. This is expressing that you're not bothered by the things that you did that you weren't paid back for. Killing your enemies with kindness will heap burning coals on their heads. That might help us feel smug as we practice this, but it's not the end game. The end game is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't understand what they even did to me. And I'm not in a place where I can yet explain that either, but I'll get there. And so we keep praying for our enemies. We don't judge, and we won't be judged. And even if you are, do you remember that God is your judge, not the world? Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. There might be those who will condemn us, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we heard just a moment ago in Confession and Assurance. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Forgive without a magic rubric of you're holding on to a grudge, and holding on to a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. Holding on to a grudge might have an elaborate rubric in your mind of what steps someone needs to take to earn your forgiveness. But forgive, and you will be forgiven. Forgive, and it will release the weight from you because you're going to carry that, and no one's ever going to read your mind to figure out the magic steps to do all the right things to ask for your forgiveness. Forgive first, and then, if possible, and safe, take opportunity later to explain the impact of someone's actions on you, and they might be less aware and more contrite than we ever imagined. But it has to start with us. It can't start with waiting for the world to be kind to us If you have received kindness in Christ, then it starts with you, with self-giving love, with generosity, in relationship, and in forgiveness. That we stretch ourselves just a little bit and set ourselves apart as people of love and grace. I have permission to tell this story. It's a story of one of my dad's. My dad had been wronged by someone Um, someone close to him, because betrayal always hurts the most when it comes from our friends. And it was weighing on him. And the one thing about grudges and, and holding on to anger and hatred is it will make you physically sick. It will take its toll on your physical body. And he was holding on to this, and he felt knots in his stomach. And he was out on the Spendler Farm, and that's kind of a holy place for us. The Spendler Farm is a very consecrated area. He was planting. It's springtime. It's go time. He was planting around the Spindler farm. And he was thinking about it. And he was thinking about this person. And he was thinking about how much they really needed to apologize to him. Of course, they never would. They were scarcely aware or concerned about what had been done. And he could not take his mind off of it. It was consuming him. And he realized he would wake up in the morning thinking about this. And he would go to bed at night thinking about this. Have you ever carried a grudge like that? And he was planting, and he was in the field, and the rain clouds were coming. 
Even if you're not a farmer, you can understand the, the, the importance of, okay, the rain clouds are coming, i got to get going on this. And the grudge was all he was thinking about. And finally, he felt not that God spoke to him audibly, but he felt this urging, Bill, you need to stop. You need to stop planting and pray. He's planting, and the rain clouds are coming. But after the third time that he felt this urging, he finally did stop, and he prayed. He prayed for his enemy. He prayed that he could forgive them, even if they didn't know that they had wronged him. And he said it felt as if the knots in his stomach were untying. And then he got back into his tractor and went back to it, and the rain clouds never came. And he tells this parable as one that he needed to experience generosity and forgiveness, and then God in turn was generous with the weather. But even if God had made it rain that day and the field would not have been finished, the burden of releasing through forgiveness was all that he really needed. Don't be afraid to stop in the middle of the field and say a prayer for your enemies to think about what the one next step that you can take is to reconcile with those who have wronged you. Start small, but start somewhere. For this is what sets us apart as people of grace and truth and God's love. Amen. Let's pray.